Hey everyone, this is Aaron Scott with the Unleashed Generosity Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This uh, bonus episode will be a companion to the episode I did with Daniel Silliman, news editor of Christianity Today, um, talking about his book, Reading Evangelicals. We'll also touch on some of his uh, work with Christianity Today, uh, where he appeared on the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast and uh, talk about some other things as well. So I hope you enjoy this bonus episode. Uh, You can check out all past episodes of the podcast uh, at www.unleashedgenerosity.org. Check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And uh, please consider supporting the show, uh, patreon.com slash unleashedgenerosity. Thanks so much and enjoy this bonus episode with myself and Daniel. Right. You talk about the history of the publishing, too, where it shifted away from publishers focusing exclusively on pastors and producing these theological or yeah. ecclesiology or, you know, things about different aspects of faith that are really directed towards faith leaders. And then it kind of shifts to like, no, like we want to produce resources for the person who says to themselves, yeah. I forget how you phrase it exactly, but like, what does it mean to follow Jesus on Tuesday? <laughs> like, yeah. how do I do that? Like this, you know, that, theological treatise doesn't really help me. And that, that shift, which, which is really pronounced in the 1950s, 60s, yeah. 70s, is where you see evangelicalism emerging. Because when you're targeting ministers, ministers are already built into traditions, denominations. Yeah. They all went to a seminary and they're connected to other ministers through their seminary experience or right. something like that. Uh, the theology that ministers are wrestling with um, is more often, I don't know, something like a, how should you baptize people or yeah, right. what should communion be look like at your church? Like those types of questions, yeah. which are very important to ministers and ministers' jobs, are also the thing where a Baptist and a Methodist and a Mennonite are not on the same page. Right. Once you shift to um, the people in the pew and their most pressing concerns, um, how do I live out my faith on a Tuesday? Yeah. Um, you end up you end up with a much more broad um, and kind of practical. Not that baptism and those things aren't practical, but a much more broad. Um, set of questions about living out your faith and and those end up being a kind of uh, any a trans-denominational culture that we can call an evangelical culture so it's questions like hey how do i read the bible mm. or how do i apply the bible to raising yeah. kids like it's those types of questions where, which is like okay this isn't methodist anymore right. this isn't christian church anymore this is this the, it's it's all of those things at once and yeah. we call that evangelical yeah and so through the, it's almost like two pieces, through the history of Christian publishing and bookstores, but then also you you have five specific novels that yeah. you selected that you feel like help build this narrative, build this, how, how we could helpfully think about what evangelicalism is. So how did you choose this? Is that, is that accurate? Bit, yeah, that's right. It was a bit of a trick figuring out how to pick which novels. Yeah. I started out... Um, looking at genres yeah. so I wrote a paper for example where I looked at 33 novels and how they represented the bible in those 33 novels uh-huh. uh, one that ends up being a massive amount of work to read all of those novels yeah. two I found that readers kind of felt like I was cherry picking like they didn't yeah. trust the story quite as much because um, 
you know, if I said, well, I've read all the romance novels and here's what they say, people yeah. just, it just didn't quite, um, wasn't quite persuasive enough. And it was really fun to read all the romance novels. It was a I lot. Mean, that it was, was a lot of work to read, <laughs> to read all of them. I read really fast. Um, yeah, so I decided to narrow it down. So I looked for five, and my criteria was um, I wanted five that had sold more than a million copies. Each one had sold more than a million copies. So they had some so sort of could be demonstrated some kind of best impact. Seller, bestseller. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and like a broad audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sold more than a million copies and also marked some kind of transition in how books are sold. Sometimes they, sometimes the bestsellers I looked at um, launched a new way of selling books. They created a new way of selling Christian books and sometimes they're just the beneficiaries of a change that was already happening. Yeah. But, but since part of the story is the story of the market, yeah. looking for what are the what are the places where something changed, where something switched. So, for example, I read about Left Behind. I have one chapter about Left Behind. Left Behind is um, a key example of one of the first books that was sold in Walmart. Mm. So it wasn't sold in a Christian bookstore, or it started in the Christian bookstore, and then when it got to a certain level of popularity, yeah. it was picked up by Walmart, which then makes it very popular. It yeah. changes the way it's read. It changes the the breadth of the conversation that's happening. So that's an example of, it's not just that it's a bestseller, it's also that it marked this kind of a change. Yeah, and Walmart deciding to carry it. Yeah. Uh, maybe changes yes. who Tim LaHaye is and the impact he I has. I it absolutely does. Yeah. And who's part of the conversation yeah. where we're calling themselves an evangelical is even an option. Yeah. Right, who, who when you think about evangelicalism as a conversation, and then it has real structures in the world, then the question is like, well, who, who has access to that conversation? Who yeah. can come into that conversation? Who can come into that conversation? Uh, do they all come into the conversation in the same way, or are there different sort of yeah. levels of access? Uh, and in that case, yeah, something being sold at Walmart dramatically changes who can join and what that might mean to join this imaginative community. Yeah. So... One of the things I found, I mean, I was a history major in undergrad, so I find I find it really exciting that you and other like historians are finding some traction in like mm-hmm. the mainstream Christian conversation about like what how do we wrestle with some of these things, yeah. and that we're actually like thinking about them historically, um, like your friend Kristen, who Jesus and John Wayne, I mean, yeah. has had a huge reach. Kristen Dumay. Calvin University. Thank you. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm glad to see, like, history playing a role, in, like a serious yeah. undertaking of, you know, historians' voices playing a role in, in yeah. how we think through and wade through some of these challenging times in, as Christians. But um, I like, can you talk a little bit about like the historical development of where bookstores were established. Oh, sure. And where they weren't. Yeah. And how that mirrors some other dynamics going on in the church. Like, it, I think it kind of explains why yeah. evangelicalism is so white. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, the, the, the whole, the whole project is to come up with a, with a, 
an explanation, something like because bookstores, <laughs> that actually explains like real questions we have. So one of the real questions in, in, in just if you live in the world today, if you care about yeah. Christianity in current America, is why black churches and white churches can be so similar in theology, why yeah. white Christians and black Christians can apparently feel the same way about Jesus and the Bible and, right. and still end up in totally different worlds. And live in the same and general the places. Same places and, and end up in the totally different worlds. I, I do think bookstores help explain why evangelicalism has been predominantly, though not exclusively, white. And part of it is uh, the story of suburbanization in America. Yeah. So, so bookstores, there's an explosion of bookstores, uh, sorry, book publishing in the 1950s in the post-war boom. Mm -hmm. That's the same period where suburbanization starts with all yeah. the GIs coming back from World War II. Yeah. Uh, white GIs are given money to build houses and move into the suburbs. This is not distributed equally regardless of race. Yeah. Uh, it specifically fuels the pretty rapid explosion of the or expansion of the white middle class. Yeah. Um, so, first you get suburbs. Then, of course, the civil rights movement um, starts at about the same time. Mm -hmm. And this backlash to the civil rights movement, you have white flight. So there's yeah. all these white people in the cities, uh, many of whom are evangelicals, who in the 1960s and 70s leave and abandon the cities and move to the suburbs. Yeah. Um, that's at about the same time that the idea of the Christian bookstore becomes really popular mm -hmm. and the credit for Christian book to start a Christian bookstore becomes possible. Mm -hmm. These all exist in the suburbs I and mean, there are a couple of exceptions, mm -hmm. but if you go back a little further, Christian bookstores pretty much only existed like next door to seminaries or, yeah. or at sort of conference um, centers, places yeah. where there were sort of annual summer Christian gatherings. Mm. Um, but yeah, in the 1970s, there's this dramatic, I, I don't remember the numbers, but in the first chapter of my book, I detail yeah. this just really accelerated growth of Christian publishing and Christian bookstores and new Christian bookstores and yeah. chain Christian bookstores. And all of it's happening in the same places that White Flight is happening which is the same places that megachurches are growing, yeah. which is the same places where um, white middle-class Americans are um, living and working and being separate from black people. Yeah. And so in the same way that, you know, Walmart allows Tim LaHaye to invite a broader group into the conversation, yeah. in some way the fact that Christian bookstores are not in urban areas, but are only in the suburbs is closing off yeah. black Christians from being a part of the conversation. Absolutely. And so again, I think that's really helpful, like historically accurate analysis of what happened, but then also like being able to then. explanatory power. Exactly. If you just say evangelicals are people who like believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. You can't explain why white people and black people end up being so different. Yeah. Um, if you say it's a conversation and it exists in these places, right? And who else is in these places and isn't in these places? Exactly. You get a better of an explanation. Mm. Yeah, and that's yeah. That uh, that was one of the most interesting parts of the book to me was these things about our culture and about the world that I would say 
I kind of would sense these things about yeah. American evangelicalism, but I can't quite put my finger on why. And then as I'm reading, I'm like, yes, okay, yeah, that explains it. The like, okay, that, yeah, which, yeah. you know, see, so you, you did a really good job, like, good. helping affirm some of the things that just, like, because it's also, like, my life, too, right? Like, being yeah. brought up in evangelicalism, um, you know, you're kind of like, like like you making sense of it in real time. Yeah, a lot of people have sort of intuitions, but then like maybe that's just my experience. Right. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of a challenge for a lot of normal people, uh, normal people meaning not historians, is that you grow up in an evangelical church and you you really don't know if you grew up in a really an evangelical church. You often don't know whether it's evangelical, right? <laughs> you and you definitely don't know like how representative was my right. experience. Am I an outlier? Am I absolutely normal? And this is what everyone who went through this experience. And it's very hard to get a sense of. Hmm. And history can help us with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So picking up on that point because we touched on it earlier, you are not saying I'm not a part of those people. I mean, you self-describe as an evangelical. Yeah, and so I'm also as. White. So, yeah, one of those evangelicals. So as a journalist and a historian, you're not coming to this as sort of a critical outsider who's just trying to poke holes in things or, like, make them look bad or, you know, right. whatever, sell more books because you can say the most inflammatory things or whatever. Like, you're coming to this as an insider where these, this is my yeah. religious group and t- trying to make sense of who are we and why are we this way and what does that mean for how we approach following Jesus so, I mean, why do you describe yourself in, as an evangelical, and what does like being an evangelical mean for your own, you know, faith and spirituality? The why has three parts. I think the third one will get into a little bit of the spirituality question. Mm-hmm. Um, first, they're the people that gave me Jesus, right? They're the yeah. people that taught me and 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 brought me to the place that I could receive Jesus. Mm. I think that whatever else happens, I have to appreciate that. I have yeah. to acknowledge that. And and that's a, not true for everybody, but that's true for me. That's a pretty mm-hmm. important thing that happened. Second, just sociologically, they are my people. Historically, yeah. they are my people. And, And as critical as I am of the 81%, as critical as I am of the politics of most of the people in my movement, and even going back like further, the histories of racism and, mm. and other terrible things, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that separating myself now, I'm not sure I actually can. But even if I could, mm. it doesn't seem to me to actually reduce my complicity. Mm. A lot of a lot of people that I have traveled with <laughs> seem to think that okay, if I can stop being an evangelical, if I can declare myself not an evangelical, that I'm now not responsible for the bad things that my people have done. Mm. Um, for me, that doesn't seem. Right. I, yeah. st- I still feel like it's a truth that these are my people historically, sociologically. This is the the people around me. These are my friends and family. Um, mm. And I'm responsible. I just I feel like it's, I'm part of it. Um, mm-hmm. For better or for worse, I'll stand with this group and be responsible for 
this group. The, the third part is that there's a peculiar feature of evangelicalism that no one's in charge. Yeah. And it's very, as, as even in this conversation, you see it's a very contested category. Yeah. So every time I've been close to thinking, yeah, I'm not an evangelical, <laughs> which it's been a while since I've been there, but when I, when I was at a moment like, yeah, I'm not an evangelical, it actually felt like seeding the definition <laughs> to mm. someone I did not think was in charge and, uh, and sort of giving authority to very particular um, men who were claiming the right to define evangelicalism mm. that I felt like, one, you're wrong. You're wrong about what evangelicalism is. You're wrong about your authority to, to pronounce what evangelicalism is. And... To leave would be partly saying, oh, no, you're right. I give it to you. <laughs> you're mm. in charge. There's a weird thing that evangelicalism has more gatekeepers than gates. There's lots <laughs> of people who sort of said, let me, I'll keep this, you know. Mm. And it's not that there are no gates. Uh, sure. But there's actually not as much authority um, as some people would like to pretend. Yeah. Without naming names. And our own, I mean, our own, <laughs> we have our own little yeah. non-denomination. I mean, we attend a yeah. Stone Campbell Restu- Christian Restoration Church. Christian yeah. Church. So for folks who aren't familiar with the Stone Campbell movement or the Restoration Churches, it's not a denomination. There's no organizational hierarchy. There's yeah. no bishops or, you know. Or even creed. There's no creed, yeah. yeah. So it's this kind of interesting corner of Protestantism. Yeah. I think. Probably a lot of people in our movement would describe themselves as evangelical. I think most, yeah. yeah. And I think our and particular those, congregation... And all of those features that you described are very much also features of evangelicalism. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that, I mean, that's part of it for me. Yeah. And the way that it shapes my spirituality is I, I do... I do find that part important. And mm. I've... I've been places where there's a bishop and there's an mm-hmm. order and there's a structure and um, that doesn't feel right to me. Mm. Um, not to just make the argument in terms of my feeling, but I, I do respond well to the injunction that we have person that we need to have a personal relationship with mm. Jesus and that um, this kind of open democratic yeah. space yeah. Of, of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself at home there, yeah. spiritually at home. Yeah. You know, we, again, Hopwood is kind of a peculiar place. The Stone Campbell Movement, Restoration Churches is a little bit peculiar. Yeah. Um, East Tennessee, where we live, is also an interesting place. Yes. Because for those who aren't familiar with this part of the country, <laughs> it's pretty rural. It's very red politically. Yeah. And it's the Bible Belt. Do you feel like, based on where we live, that that's helpful for you as you go about doing your work? Because it gives you insight to, like, this is, for lack of a better term, I don't want this to sound like a political term, but like the base, mm-hmm. like the heart of evangelicalism. Like, this is how most evangelicals think because I'm kind of just swimming in this evangelical culture. Or is that not accurate? Or, like, what do you. How do you feel about living here and how that factors into, you know, just kind of how you do your work or how you think about evangelicalism? I do think it helps. I mean, I did write about evangelicalism 
then write a book about evangelical American evangelicalism while living in Germany. So yeah, right. I do believe you can be distant from it mm-hmm. and write about it well. Um, but you do have to kind of stay in touch and you have to find ways to, to connect. Uh, historically, Christianity Today has been, since the 70s, located in Wheaton, which right. is obviously a very distinct evangelical right. culture and its own evangelical, own peculiar evangelical culture. Yeah. And I do think there was a challenge at certain points in that history where everyone existed, all the editors existed in the same bubble, more mm. or less. Um, so I think... Yeah, from East Tennessee, I do see a particular kind of culture and a particular angle of um, evangelicalism. And teaching at Milligan, I see a certain kind of 18-year-old evangelical kid uh, that's different than if I were at Wheaton. Yeah. Um, and I would say currently CT is more, has more remote workers. Um, yeah. Fewer of us are based in the office. There's a lot of Zoom meetings. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that diversity helps see the many eyed beast of evangelicalism. <laughs> so, your colleagues, are they scattered around the country or are they, is it just kind of a few pockets? Like, are you an outlier being in a rural part of the country? And in a, um, or are you got people scattered in all sorts of places? I think I'm the most rural of okay. our colleagues. I'm the only one who has neighbors doing firing ranges, target practice, doing yeah. Zoom meetings. I think that's just me. Yeah, um, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what's that shooting? Ah, that's just George. It's fine. It's um, just East Tennessee. It's just East Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, I have three neighbors with front yard shooting ranges in my neighborhood. Uh, but yeah, my I have a colleague in uh, Augusta, Georgia. Okay. I have a colleague and a couple colleagues in Kentucky. Uh-huh. I have a colleague in Hawaii. Um, I have a colleague in New York City. Okay. I have a colleague in Africa. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 That's pretty diverse. Di- it's yeah. pretty diverse, and also all of those people come from different places. Currently, go to church in different places. So right. we we often um, like not to not sit around and debate. Well, what your evangelicalism doesn't yeah, yeah. seem right to me, but but there is a like. Oh, here's what my church is doing. What's your church is doing? What are you saying in your neighborhood? Yeah. What are you saying in your neighborhood? Yeah. And the people that you've gotten to and know the around the country, you your networks. And, right? Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you a few uh, few questions in closing that yeah. maybe just aren't as heavy? Yeah. Just, since we started questions. light and, yeah. we'll, and just a little bit lighter. <laughs> absolutely. So what, what gets you excited in life right now? And again, do you take these as serious or as flippant as you want? Excited. I mean, I love a good story. Yeah. I love I love I love the moment when I'm writing something when it actually comes together. Um, I I really love my my work and as heavy and as dark as it as it can be, I get yeah. a lot of joy out of clearly stating something in a sentence yeah. and clearly connecting to people. I write. I also uh, do a lot of the obits for Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get so much joy out. Just telling someone's life story and yeah. finding the moment when they changed—that's that's always really exciting to me. Mm. What's one thing you're pretty sure you know for sure? I'm pretty sure I know for sure. Mm. I'm not sure I have a good. <laughs> 
nothing. You know nothing. No, it's not nothing. Sure. I forget like ways that other people have answered this question. And like I know there's like this is a genre of question and I'm forgetting the genre and want to go broad. I mean you could just say like cats are better than dogs. I mean like it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that big. It doesn't have to be uh, or you can just pass and we can go to the next question. Why don't we pass? I feel like I'm watching this question. Let's pass. What's one thing you used to be sure about, but now you're, now you're not so sure about? Um, I used to, well, connected to this conversation, I used to think that theology mattered more, and I used to think that being right mattered more. Mm-hmm. Um kind of believe that being right won't save you and having a particular kind of theology won't for example prevent abuse I think when I started reading about abuse I assumed that it would exist only in certain places only with certain beliefs Mm -hmm. Um, I think the ways we rationalize and think about the universe actually doesn't quite affect us at our core of being humans as much as we would like it to. Which is not to say none, sure. but I used to think it mattered a lot more than it did. Yeah. What's one fear that keeps you from being more generous? Oh, well that one cuts deep. <laughs> um, I, I'm someone who's always afraid of losing time, hmm. of running out of time. I have a really hard time being generous with time. Um, When I feel that people are wasting my time, I I really, I really get stingy. I really, I I don't know. If I give you money and you blow it, I don't care that much. But Hmm. if I show up to, if you ask me to move and I show up and you're like not ready to move, (laughs) like I'm pretty annoyed. That is pretty frustrating. I really, I really struggle. Yeah. to be generous with time and really have this, even with myself, just, just have, learning to trust that there's enough time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been super gracious with your time today because we've gone over... <laughs> I didn't mean to end no, this. No, no. This no. has been great. I've really enjoyed this No, and I, that's what I was going to say. It's I a mean, very been, good use of time. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad you've enjoyed it because I have too. So last question then. What's, way you're re- what's one way you really are enjoying being generous? Um, man, I think when I really enjoy being generous, I kind of stop thinking of it in terms of generosity. Mm. I mean, I love asking people questions yeah. and and listening to people's stories, but I actually feel like I'm putting a burden on them. That doesn't feel like it. Mm. it my experience of it is not as an act of generosity. Um, in the last few years being at Hopwood, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to put down roots, getting a chance mm. to live in a place, hopefully, possibly forever, mm. and throwing myself into the community and volunteering in mm-hmm. ways that stretch me, like teaching Sunday school yeah. or That's awesome. serving communion. But those also don't really feel like being generous. I mean, it really, it literally is service, but I feel like I get so much out of it. Mm. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Hopefully. Well, thanks so much for your time. This has been fun. Thanks. It's been great. Yeah.